Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Good morning. Everybody doing well this morning? Excellent. So we are in part three of this series called Foundations. And if you've been with us so far, we have talked about salvation. We've talked about assurance of salvation. We've talked about rewards. And now today is big. Okay, today we are looking at a concept known as grace. And grace is a big part of being a Christian. In fact, it's one of the unique distinctives of the Christian faith. No other system of religious thought, past or present, has an emphasis on divine grace comparable to that in the Bible. And as Christians, you know, we love grace. I mean, how could you not? Grace means undeserved favor. Okay, undeserved merit. We're getting something that we don't deserve. I love that, don't you? (laughs) Of course. But you know what? For a lot of people, it seems a little too good to be true. It's so radical that some people have a difficult time buying into it, and so they choose the competition. Now, pretty much every organization or company or movement wants to know who their biggest competition is. Who is our number one competitor? So, for example, for the Coca-Cola company, it would probably be who? Pepsi, right. Or maybe for Democrats, it would be Republicans, right? For Viking fans, it would be the Packers, yes. Congratulations, all you Packer fans. We'll get you back later on in the year, but... Okay, for Windows, it would be Apple, right. Now, I raise all this to ask the question, and I just want you to think about this one. I want you to answer right away. just want you to process this. Who do you think would be Christianity's biggest competitor, right? If you were to name that rival that could claim the largest number of people from actually putting their faith in Jesus, what would that be? The Bible actually talks about this, and it's so, so fascinating because it doesn't name another religion. It doesn't talk about a different faith. It's more subtle than that. It is so subtle that millions upon millions of people go to church, read their Bibles, and think they're Christians, but in reality, they are not believers. They're actually pursuing the way of Christianity's biggest competitor. I would hate for that to happen here. God would hate for that to happen to you, but it's been going on since Jesus walked this earth. And so here's where I want to start today. Listen carefully to John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Jesus walked this earth, he was always getting into these heated debates with the religious people of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. And it can all be boiled down to this. The religious leaders of the day focused on the law, but they had lost grace and truth. The religious leaders focused on the law, but they had lost grace and truth. They were so concerned with the letter of the law that they missed the spirit of the law. And in one of their heated exchanges, Jesus said this, what sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law? For you crush people with unbearable religious demands. You know, I think it's hard for us to imagine what it was like to live under the Old Testament law. Did you know that the Old Testament actually spelled out 613 specific laws? 
And as if that wasn't enough, the highly religious Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they invented and followed hundreds and hundreds more man-made laws that they forced upon the people. They were found in the Talmud. And, And some of them were reasonable. Some of them were just downright ridiculous. I mean, they actually invented and followed these recitations, these blessings they would have to recite after every time they went to the bathroom, okay? I kid you not. I was gonna read some to you, but they're just too weird, so I'm gonna spare you that. Seriously. Those were the man-made laws, but Jesus, he came to fulfill the actual Old Testament law, which, by the way, no human being had ever done. And then he told the Jews in Matthew 5, 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish. Some versions say fulfill their purpose. That's why Jesus came, to fulfill the law. But then once Jesus fulfilled the law, he introduced a new way to live, not by works of the law, but by grace through faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that became the hallmark that makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. The Apostle Paul, he put it this way in Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Let me say this again. If you're a Christian, you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, what exactly does that mean? Okay, especially the not under the law part. Well, to understand where Jesus was going with grace and truth, I think you first need to understand the purpose of the Old Testament law as God originally intended it. See, the Old Testament spells out different kinds of laws. First of all, there were ceremonial laws. Okay, those had to do with sacrifices, rituals, skin diseases, food restrictions, and so forth. Then there were civil laws. Those had to do with regulations for the government of the nation of Israel, how the country was to operate. And then finally, there were moral laws, where God kind of set forth some ethical standards of behavior. Okay, the Ten Commandments would fit into that category. Now, one common mistake I think people make is when they try to figure out which category an Old Testament law fits into, or when they say that we are still under certain laws today in the New Testament, right? We're still living under the law. No, the New Testament says quite clearly, okay? We are not under the law, but under grace. But if that's true, you've got to ask the question, then why have the laws in the first place? It's a good question. I mean, some of the answers may be obvious because Israel was a nation. They had to have governmental laws. They had to have judicial laws. That makes sense. But what about all those other laws? What was the purpose of the law? Well, we're going to talk about that. We can't just make a blanket statement here. Okay, It's not that simple. But the New Testament writers do give us a few purposes of the law. They do highlight a few, primarily to set it in contrast to grace and to keep us from going back to being slaves to the law. But in Galatians 5.1, we have this description of the law. This is what Paul says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Okay, the yoke of slavery here in context is clearly talking about the law. So according to the apostle Paul here, the law is pictured as a yoke. Now, if you know anything about a yoke, a yoke is put on cattle and its purpose is what? To control the animal. So one purpose of the law was to control us. The law was given to rein us in. That's easy enough to understand. I mean, if we lived in a world without any laws, would there be any control? Not really. If there wasn't a law saying that you have to drive on the right side of the freeway, would there be trouble? Probably so. 
mean, what if there were no stoplights, no speed limits? <laughs> Would there be trouble? Definitely. We need laws to maintain some semblance of order and control, right? Law has the power to keep us in check. I read about a school crossing guard in Florida, Dale Rooks, who tried everything to get cars to slow down through his local school zone, but nothing worked. And so finally he goes home and he takes an old hairdryer and wraps it in electrical tape, okay? Makes it look like a radar gun. And now he says he just goes out and points it at the cars as they're driving by. And it's incredible how quickly they slam on the brakes. He said, it's almost comical how well it works. People, that's like the law, right? It's there to remind us of our sin, right? To kind of keep us in check, to rein us in. But it doesn't do anything really to change your nature. See, here's the point I want to make. A yoke does not turn a cow into a horse or a chicken. A cow will always have the nature of a cow. And likewise, the yoke of the law doesn't change you in any sense. It can't make you a different person, but it can keep you a little bit under control. So the law is pictured as a yoke. All right, a second illustration of the law we find over in James chapter 1, where it says the law is pictured as a mirror. Look at James 1, 22 to 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So the law is a lot like a mirror. Okay, you look in a mirror to see what you look like, right? And then maybe you make changes, but the mirror itself doesn't make those changes. It just shows you that you're dirty or that your hair is messed up or in my case, that your bald spot keeps growing, okay? It just reveals that true condition. That's the weakness of the law. It just shows you where you've blown it. It doesn't do anything to help clean you up. And the law is a lot like a moral mirror. Look at Romans 7, 7. Paul says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. Here's what the law does. The law shows us that we've all sinned, that we all fall short of God's perfect standard, which then should lead us to accept Jesus as our savior, to accept the fact we need somebody to die in our place. We need somebody to take our place. Galatians 3.24 says it best. So the law was put in charge to do what? To lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. There's the purpose of the law, to show us we've blown it and we need a savior. So the law is like a yoke that keeps us under control. It's like a mirror that shows us our ugliness but doesn't help to clean us up. And so Jesus, he comes into this world to fulfill the law and then to move us beyond the law and towards something known as grace. And this brings us back to what is central and foundational to the Christian faith. This brings us back to my initial question. What is the biggest competitor to Christianity? It's the law. It's works. Grace and works of the law cannot coexist, people. And if there's one passage that blew my mind when I first came into Christianity, when I first came to understand this, in fact, this is the passage that helped lead me to Christ, changed my view of Jesus, changed my view of Christianity and religion in general. It's Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. I want you to listen carefully to this. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Grace means unmerited favor, a gift. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul says that Jesus' way is the way of grace. You have been rescued, you have been saved, you've been delivered, you've been redeemed as a gift of grace. God's love, God's favor, God's presence, God's power, God's forgiveness are all available to you as a free gift of grace. And you would think everybody would say, oh, that's great, right? Yay for grace. But it turns out there's a little sticking point. Paul says that if we're saved by grace, there is no room for boasting. It says that this is not by works. Why? So that no one can boast. In other words, people, grace requires a deep, deep humbling. <clears throat> Man, imagine if a woman were to say to you, I am just marrying you as a gift, okay? You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't merit it. You didn't achieve it. You didn't win it. You don't deserve it. I'm just marrying you as a sheer act of grace. You know what I would say? I do. <laughs> Actually, I did, okay? <laughs> That's pretty much the message of my engagement, I think. But I'm kidding, maybe. But you see, here's the message of grace. You ready for this? The message of grace is in your face. The message of grace is you have a problem. That's the message of grace. You have a problem. I have a problem. Oh, and it's not just a lack of education, a lack of maturity. No, 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 no. You have a big problem. You have been separated from a perfect and holy God because of your sin. Your heart turns away from God. You need to be rescued. You need to be saved. I need to be saved. And my performance is not going to cut it. Or worse than that, the consequences of this sin, it's death. It's physical death. It's spiritual death. It's death. And death really just means separation. When you hear that word death, you need to think separation. When you see that word in the Bible, think separation, right? When you die, your physical body separates from your soul. That's death. Or when you sin against God, it leads to death, a separation in your relationship with God. So sin leads to death and we all sin. So if I'm judged by my performance, there is no hope. But the alternative way, the Jesus way, is grace. Now, I think many people, when they hear that word grace, tend not to understand the staggering nature of it. People think of a nice, polite, hospitable, low-cost transaction, right? A gracious host, a gracious comment, that kind of thing. Okay, the grace of God is nothing like that. When you really understand what it means to be saved by grace, it'll wreck you. You see, forgiveness always costs someone. And the ultimate place of forgiveness at the ultimate price was the cross. And let me tell you, the Bible uses a number of pictures to try and convey the depth, the meaning of the cross. It uses the language of the marketplace, that Jesus paid a debt I could never pay. It uses the language of worship and the temple. Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice I could never offer. It uses the language of a courtroom and justice. Jesus suffered the punishment, the guilty verdict that I could never survive. And in every one of these, Jesus is taking my place. See, the ultimate act of love is the act of one human being giving his life for another. I mean, that's the most noble and compelling act in any story. It moves us like nothing else. And the cross tells us that that story lies at the heart of human existence. It lies at the heart of God. 
And without the cross, hear me on this, without the cross, there's no such thing as Christianity. There's just a performance plan like every other religion. But at the cross, you are invited, I'm invited to what might be called the great exchange, right? I can exchange my old guilt for his innocence. I can exchange my old death for his never ending life. I I can exchange my old enslavement to sin for his freedom. I can exchange my old despair for his hope. When I come by faith to the cross, my heavenly father takes my old messed up heart and he gives me a new one in its place. He gives me the Holy Spirit to live inside of me, to be my friend, to be my guide. And this can happen for you people. But on the flip side, if I miss grace, I mean, I miss forgiveness of my sins. I miss peace with God. I miss having the power to change my life. I miss comfort and grief. I miss purpose for life. I miss hope beyond death. I miss it all. If I miss grace, I miss it all. And this is so, so important here. Hear me on this. You can know this. Okay, you can hear this and it doesn't change a thing because grace calls for a question. Here's the great question of Jesus. Will you receive me as a free gift of grace? Not by works, by faith, by simply believing my promise. Look at John 1.12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, let's switch gears a bit here. As a church, we absolutely believe in grace, but let me tell you, grace is not just something to be believed in. It's something to be lived out. So in all of our church ministries, in all of our church events, In in all of our church meetings, we want grace to be present. In all of our interaction with people, we want to show grace. We want to live it out. We want to live like Jesus lived. We want to show grace like Jesus showed grace. Now, what does that look like specifically for us as a church? I would say it this way. Hill Country Bible Church Georgetown is a place where everybody is welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. That's it in a nutshell. Everybody is welcome. Nobody's perfect and anything is possible. Let's talk through these. First of all, everybody is welcome. You know, Jesus, when he walked this earth, he walked around and it was almost like he had a sign around his neck that read, everybody is welcome. And even his disciples were confused and scandalized by this. They didn't get it at first. But after he died and the Holy Spirit came upon them, a transformation took place in that community. I'm telling you, the church became a place that had never existed before. I mean, in that day, there were a wide variety of countries and cultures and armies and guilds and families and tribes. But I'm telling you, there had never been a place, never been a community where they had the idea that anybody who wanted to could just come in. But it was because Jesus welcomed everyone. Think about it. He didn't shy away from the prostitutes. He didn't shy away from the tax collectors. He didn't shy away from the lepers. He went into their homes. He hung out with them. He ate meals with them. He made wine for them. He was called a friend of sinners. In Luke 7, Jesus says, the son of man, referring to himself, came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because of this association with the out crowd, he was actually accused of being a drunkard. 
So you got to ask the question, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus hang out with those people? A couple reasons. First of all, Jesus loves everyone equally. No partiality. But second, I think Jesus recognized that those who were the known sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, were closer to salvation because they weren't leaning on their own righteousness like the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, Jesus once said to the self-righteous religious leaders, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Wow. You know, Jesus, he was tolerant. Man, he was so, so tolerant of just about everybody. You know who Jesus didn't tolerate? (laughs) He didn't tolerate the people who weren't tolerant, the religious leaders. Jesus was never harsh with the sinners, but boy, he got riled up and he was harsh with the self-righteous, the proud. So first, everybody's welcome. No matter your background, no matter where you find yourself in life right now, Jesus showed grace and we're gonna do the same as a church. That's who we are. Everybody's welcome. Second, nobody is perfect. I want you to raise your hand if you're perfect, just so I can confirm this. Okay, good. So far, so good. I'm batting 100%. Okay, there we go. Nobody's perfect. We all have issues. So if you're sitting there and you're like, well, I'm going to judge someone else's struggle, someone else's sin, that's hypocritical. That's prideful. That is not what we're about as a church. If you have that temptation, that propensity, please go and find a church where you can be with other perfect people like you, all right? Not here, not this church. We all recognize that we've got our own backgrounds. We've got our own baggage we struggle with. We recognize we're wired, we're shaped differently from birth. So your temperament will even determine what, what practices may come easier to you and which ones may be more difficult to you. Where you struggle, where you don't struggle. I mean, if you're more introverted, you're probably, you probably have a greater capacity for solitude, right? Just connecting with God. That doesn't mean you're more spiritual than someone who's an extrovert and struggles with that. If you're more extroverted, community probably comes more naturally to you. That doesn't mean you're automatically spiritually superior to those who are introverted. I mean, we all come to Christ with certain vulnerabilities, temptations, sin that we wrestle with. And since you don't know where another brother or sister's coming from, God says, be careful how you judge others. Now, what does authentic Christian community look like? Well, first of all, as I just said, we don't look down around here on other people. We don't look down on another brother, another sister in Christ. Uh, We love each other. We speak truth to each other. We name sin as sin. We call people to turn from it. We even confess to each other. That's part of the fellowship deal. You know what else we do? We apologize to each other a whole bunch. We don't allow conflict to go unresolved. We let go of bitterness because we realize nobody is perfect. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And third, anything is possible. You never know. When Jesus gets a hold of a person's life, you never know. He fills that person with his spirit. He gives them spiritual gifts. He begins to work on their heart and mind. So now they're able to do what they could never do in their own human ability. I mean, Jesus put it this way in Luke 18, 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. We absolutely believe that around here. I've seen it. I've seen thousands of lives transformed supernaturally by God. But you look at the Bible, you see so many examples of this. A shaky kind of impulsive guy by the name of Simon becomes Peter, Petros, the rock. 
He goes from denying Jesus repeatedly to boldly preaching Jesus in the city square. A wealthy guy by the name of Joe becomes so generous with his life and resources, they give him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Saul, a Jewish zealot, a hater of the Gentiles, becomes Paul, a man who sacrifices his energy, his passion, his freedom, ultimately his life to love the Gentiles, to win the Gentiles for Christ. There's never been a community like this because with God, anything is possible. God can change people in spite of their lifestyle. So around here, what does anything is possible look like for us practically? Well, first of all, we say this all the time. God only has imperfect people to work with. That's all he has to work with is messed up people. So we love and accept everybody we see at church, regardless of their appearance, right? We reach unchurched people. We don't know their background. And so we welcome everybody around here, just like Jesus did. And then we help them to take steps to go forward in their spiritual life. And we're realistic about the progress they can make. Yeah, anything is possible with God. But folks, it takes time for people to mature. So be loving, be patient with everyone. Okay, in closing here, let me let you in on the secret to living in grace. It's pretty simple. It goes like this. Learn to enjoy God's unconditional love. Learn to enjoy God's unconditional love. People, we need to grasp how deeply God loves us. His love for us is unconditional. Look at 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Think about this. As a child, your value is based on what? It's based on who you are, not what you do. And God says, I want you to enjoy my unconditional love as a father loves his child. And I know that I know that I know that for some of you, that can be a hard thing to accept because you've been trained, you've been programmed to think of conditional love. Maybe your whole life, you felt like I can never measure up. And if that's the case, you need to come to the grace of God and just embrace the fact that God loves you for who you are. You don't have to measure up because his son Jesus has already measured up for you. You know, I talk to people and a lot of times they'll say something along these lines. They'll say, Brian, you know, the reason I'm not more consistent in my Christian life is because I just don't know that I love Jesus enough. Man, if I love Jesus more, I'd be more consistent. But you know what? It's not that we don't love Jesus enough. It's that we don't understand how much Jesus loves us. Because love people is always a response. Look at what the Bible says. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. You get your brain around that one. You get your mind around that truth. If you realize how deeply God loves you, it'll motivate you to live for him. It'll motivate you to please him because you can't help but love somebody who loves you with no strings attached. That, my friends, is grace. So please learn to enjoy God's unconditional love. Live in his love, live in his grace. Know that he loves you, he wants the best for you and nothing, I mean nothing, will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, for those of us here who have believed in your name, 
We need to embrace your love and your grace and live out of it. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not 100% sure that you are a child of God. You've had doubts, you've had struggles. You would say, I don't know if I'm forgiven. I don't know if I have eternal life. There's nothing you can do about that except receive Jesus as a free gift of grace by believing in his name. And you can do that right now just in the quietness of your heart. Say, Jesus, I'm done trusting in my own works, in my own good deeds. I'm trusting in your promise. Your promise that you died on the cross for me, that you've forgiven me, that you love me, that you give eternal life. And I'm putting my faith fully in that, in that alone. God, I thank you for showing us in your word the purpose of the law, that it, it was there to rein in sin like a yoke to control us. It was there as a mirror to show us that we don't measure up, to show us that we fall short. And ultimately, as Galatians says, the whole purpose of the law was to lead us to Jesus, that we might be saved by faith. Jesus, I thank you that now that you have fulfilled the law, you've called us into a new way to live, living by grace. Mm. And I pray that we would be a church that not simply proclaims grace, but lives it out. A place where everybody is welcome, no matter where they're coming from. Everybody is embraced here. A place where everybody recognizes that we're not perfect and we are patient with each other's shortcomings. But also a place where we recognize anything is possible. Because when you get a hold of our lives, supernaturally, you can transform us. So God, I thank you for your amazing love. Thank you that as your children, we don't have to measure up. We don't have to prove ourselves that our worth, our value is based on who we are, not what we do. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that we would learn that secret to living in grace, that we would just enjoy your immense love for us and we would serve you out of gratitude for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray.